Carlton Owen, immediate past president and CEO of the U.S. Endowment for Forestry and Communities, and a proud supporter of Keeping Forest. Keeping Forest is the producer of this podcast called How the River Flows. Keeping Forest is built on a powerful and simple idea to ensure that our region's forests have a future. We're working hard to conserve the 245 million acres of existing forests by supporting private landowners, shedding light on why this land matters, and showing what you can do to help. Every episode of How the River Flows will take a close look at the relationship between healthy forests and clean drinking water. Our experts will share their best ideas along with specific examples about conserving local forests to ensure a lasting, clean supply of drinking water to meet local needs. Each time, we'll bring you a new take on how landowners can be compensated for the tremendous environmental value that their working forests provide to everyone. You'll learn how these innovations are financed, managed, and even how your local community can join the effort in protecting our precious southern forests and the many benefits, including clean water, that they provide. So sit back and enjoy this episode of How the River Flows. Thanks, Carlton. I'm Judy Tackett. In this episode of How the River Flows, we'll be covering how the seeds of keeping forest were sown. My guests today are Ken Arney, Dr. Ann Murray Allen, and Scott Davis. So let's start with Ken Arney. He's the regional forester for the southern region of the U.S. Forest Service. Ken oversees 13.3 million acres of our national forest system lands across the 13 southern states and Puerto Rico. Before joining the Forest Service, Ken served more than 20 years with the Tennessee Wildlife Resources Agency and as the Tennessee State Forester. Ken, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Judy. It's a, it's a pleasure to be with you today. Well, let's just jump right in. Uh, what makes the forests of the U.S. South so special? Well, I think for me, Southern forests are special because they've been a setting for some of my best experiences in my life. I grew up on a farm that about half of the land was forested. And, uh, and actually, my parents harvested timber on our farm to build their house back in the 1960s. And I spent a good bit of time in the forest and was always very inquisitive. Uh, on our farm, there were many dead snags of American chestnut trees that had succumbed to the chestnut blight. And it made me wonder why this happened and, and really was one of the reasons I studied and, and went to school to become a professional forester. So the forest, I just spent many times with best friends uh, in the forest, hiking, horseback hunting, hunting, fishing. Uh, and, and doing a variety of things that uh, it's, it's just my happy place, so to speak. But I would say in addition, uh, the forests are special because uh, they're so important to the rural economies in the South. Uh, forest and, product, and forest products industry generates uh, over $250 billion in economic output, as well as over a million jobs are provided in forest industry. And it's just really important to the forest economy. The Southeast is really considered the wood basket of the world. Uh, about 60% of the timber that's used in this country is harvested in the South, as well as a substantial percent of wood is exported for the world market. And two, uh, just the dependence of the, for, uh, of the population in the South for water and the fact that the forests provide clean water and forest soils tend to be more porous and uh, capture the uh, capture the, the rainfall and, and runoff more so than a developed area. Forests are important for many, many reasons. 
So can you describe some of the uh, biggest challenges that are facing Southern forests right now? Well, let's say one of the biggest threats to Southern forests is the conversion of forests to other land uses. And, uh, and the Southern Forest Futures Project was really the uh, foundation for, this, for the Keeping Forest Initiative. And, and that work that was done by the U.S. Forest Service uh, as well as the state forestry agencies uh, projected a loss of up to 23 million acres over the next 40 years. That's out of a total of 245 million acres of forest land in the southern region, 13 states in the southern region. So that's that's a huge threat. And uh, and then two, the the another challenge is the fact that uh, 70% of the forest in the southeast is privately owned by mostly non-industrial private landowners and and uh, the age distribution of those landowners is uh, is older than 55 years of age so a lot of the land is going to change ownerships in the next uh, in the next few years and decades and uh, and the uns- there's just uncertainty as to the future owner owners of the southern forest and and the value that they will place on that so can we go back and talk a little bit more about keeping forests and how the the initiative came to be kind of and, and how you were involved in that? Well, I was involved as a Forest Service employee and, and uh, previously I'd worked with the Wildlife Agency in Tennessee and then with the Tennessee uh, Department of Agriculture Division of Forestry. I was director of the Division of Forestry in Tennessee at one time. So I was uh, very keenly aware, not only in the state that I worked in prior to the U.S. Forest Service, but just the, the work that was done by the Forest Service with Southern Forest Futures and uh, the impacts to change in land use were larger than any one organization or entity. And so I, I discussed a great deal of these findings with Carlton Owen, who is the CEO and president of the U.S. Endowment for Forest and Communities, about how do we, how do we address this at a scale that can make a difference. And, uh, and, uh, and initially, after some discussions with Carlton, I uh, met with the Southern Group of State Foresters as a group, all 13 uh, directors of the Division of Foresters, Forestry Commissions in the Southeast, and uh, and talked about uh, doing something uh, large scale that could address the uh, loss of forest land. And we brought together a diverse group of stakeholders and leaders from across the region to uh, talk about the challenges that we face with uh, keeping forests. And how do we work together on this initiative to accomplish the objectives of each organization or entity, both federal, state, local, as well as non-government organizations and and even private industry for that matter. And so the initial meeting, I think, highlighted the challenges that we face with loss of forest land, as well as started an initiative that really started to build relationships and trust, as I think those are key to any successful large-scale initiative. And uh, and so that was the first meeting. And since that time, I've lost count, but there's probably been six or eight uh, follow-up meetings with this diverse group of stakeholders. We've been meeting and working at it since that time. And, and, and I think building a coalition that uh, that cares and wants to make a difference at scale. What advice do you have for someone who is trying to protect the South forests? 
Well, if it's a landowner that uh, has an interest or a, a citizen for that matter, I would say reach out to the state forestry agency in the state in which they reside. And uh, the state agencies can provide, if they're a landowner, technical assistance on forest management. Uh, or if they're a citizen that's just an interested type citizen in forest, then uh, they can give advice on, on different initiatives and, and local uh, opportunities that uh, the the citizen may have to be involved in retaining forest and and helping to tell the story on the importance of forest. From the landowner's perspective, there are incentives uh, that are available to help offset costs of some of the practices. There are tax incentives, reforestation grant programs, and in some cases even easements that can be used. Useful, depending on the circumstances and, and where the uh, landowner's land may be located in the South. Can you kind of talk a little bit more about what the term ecosystem services means to you? Well, ecosystem services are really the benefit that are provided to people by the natural environment. And the healthy, resilient forest ecosystems generally provide more consistent benefits than forests that are not managed. And uh, there's a need to quantify the ecosystem service services of forests in the South and provide or create expanded market for those services that would compensate the landowner. So happen to understand the ecosystem services that forests provide can generate a good bit of public and private funding that in turn will help with forest conservation. And how do you convince people that keeping forests is an important endeavor? Well, I think coordinated communication efforts with state, federal, and other conservation partners is one way. Uh, targeted messaging campaigns based on focus groups and polling across the 13 states would be another. And, and just continue to share the value that forests provide ecologically and economically and raise the political profile of forestry in the South. A good example is the Georgia Outdoor Stewardship Act or the Great American Outdoor Act. That's a nationwide act that was passed by Congress uh, within the last year. So if somebody is trying to decide to work on keeping forests or put their time, effort and energy into something else, why should they choose keeping forests? Well, because forests are so important to the um, quality of life and uh, not only the ecological benefits of clean air and clean water that forests provide, but also the opportunity for recreation and the, the, uh, the opportunity to do whatever form of recreation is, is important to the individual. And forests just provide that setting for recreation of ourselves, so to speak. Uh, physically, mentally, and, and so forth. And spiritually as well? Uh, absolutely. I want to go to a conversation with Dr. Ann Murray Allen. Dr. Allen is an experienced executive whose career has blended high-stakes business with the social sciences in doing cross-sector work. Combining her MBA and doctorate, Dr. Allen specializes in building effective collaborations out of complexity and uncertainty. Dr. Allen, welcome. I'm glad to be with you, and I'm really happy to be part of this conversation. Seems that you have some serious superpowers. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. Uh, I have a passion. And that is to work with particularly complex 
projects where multi-stakeholders are involved and really help them find a way to work together that creates extraordinary results. Well, that's an amazing passion. We heard from Ken Arney about the scope of the solution needing to match the scope of the problem. So can you talk a little bit about that and maybe help us understand kind of uh, what that means? If you're looking at a huge system, something that uh, you're trying to impact for the good, uh, you can't just look at it with the same old tools that help you solve problems or projects that you get your arms around. You really need uh, to think big in terms of solutions uh, that would be addressing, in, in, well, in the face of high uncertainty, how would you create an answer, but you're going to have to do it collectively that will truly scale impact. Very simply, if you think of a system, what is a system? It's an interconnected set of elements that's coherently organized in a way that achieves something. So some basic examples anyone could relate to would be a process. You know, it could be just a manufacturing process, a business process of any kind. That's a system. An organization is a system. The forest is a system as a whole, as you can imagine, with many interconnected parts that exist to maintain something. So that's when we talk about systems. Those images should come to mind. Then there's what's system thinking. And that's anybody's ability to understand these connections in such a way as to achieve a desired purpose. So, so often we think of, we're trained to think about isolated incidents. You know, something happened over here or over there and we're, we're reactive. We're not using our system thinking. So that's why being able to see how things connect over time and distance is very important if we're going to have a system scale impact. When you look back at the most successful initiatives or projects that have used uh, systems thinking, what are some of the key elements that, that you've seen that it's been the key to their success? The first thing is that you invite the right people to the process. You get the right, I don't know, sampling of people that know the system, work inside it, have a point of view, but uh, maybe come from different disciplines or different types of organizations. That that takes some thought up front. Then you spend the time bringing people together, building a sense of community, learning about systems thinking, because almost very few people really understand that. And they're still operating from kind of a linear analytical thought process and not from a, how do we deal with relationships and complexity over time, getting comfortable with uncertainty rather than believing you can, you know, we'll find it. If we just analyze this enough, we'll find the answer. It's not the way it works. If you don't take the time to build the right skills for how you're going to interact with each other, then it just turns into an argument. You know, my point of view and, and, and the strong or the loud prevail, but you don't have everyone with you then. You just have a few people trying to push their view, which almost always is not uh, the correct view. I mean, I have to say, with all the maps we've done, with all the groups we've been with, everyone's surprised at what they end up with. It's counterintuitive. This is why, and even if you think, oh, here's a, a point of leverage, you're usually pushing on it the wrong way. So it takes that 
coming together to to kind of see the broader picture and to be in that mess. And then once you see it, you really see it and you can with confidence, everyone being enlisted, move forward. So for some folks who might be thinking, oh my gosh, this sounds, you know, we're we're singing together and it's kind of a little bit more squishy than, than they like, what, what would you say to them? Well, what I'd say is what you've done in the past around looking at problems or challenges that might have been a little more straightforward, they, they had less unpredictability and, you know, you were carving out problems that you could wrap your arms around. You know, you can get by with less of an investment in coming together and appreciating the diverse points of view inside of a a system. But if you really want to take on the intractable problems that exist today, you're going to have to work across boundaries, whether it's sectors or different divisions or organizations. No one organization or leader or company or government can solve some of these problems and meet these challenges. So I think the soft stuff is really the hard stuff. You know, by coming together, it's, you know, the image we like to use, I I think it's been mentioned before in some other webinars, the blind man and the elephant, we all see a piece, but if we're going to argue whether about what it is, because we're experiencing something differently, you will never come together to make something happen that matters. So it's all about learning to listen to each other, to see it from different angles, and ultimately to align on a single view, that that's where the power is. So in in addition to those intense and focused conversations, what are some of the other hallmarks of successful projects that you've seen that have gone through this process? Well, what we've found over time, and there's a reason with complex challenges that they get frustrating and people give up or it devolves and and disintegrates. And that is um, people don't understand that they really have to spend time together reflecting, creating a shared view. That's what the system map aids you in doing. Uh, It creates that kind of, here's a wall chart now. We can talk about what's in our heads, our collective mental model. And so we find that the first phase is always community building with the group. You have to select, okay, who? what's the cross-section of people that we want to build this map? In the case of keeping forests, what you had to do is pick from different sectors. Who are the people that care about the forests in the southeastern United States? We want to talk to businesses. We want to talk to government agencies uh, on various levels, state and federal, And we also want to be able to talk with um, nonprofits already working on that and communities. So how do you get a cross-section of people committed to the process? And then you build their relationships at the same time you're building their abilities to talk together in a different way. And I can't say enough about, I mean, the indication of success is people get excited. They go from arguing with each other having louder voices try to prevail to we're in this together, we're, we're speaking together, we're excited. And uh, so it builds dedication, energy, and focus. Well, that's a really interesting description of the, of the shift that happens in, in the mindset. Did you see that with Keeping Forests? I did. I did. Uh, 
And I have to say, Keeping Forests was one of the largest cross-sector initiatives that we worked with. Uh, so we entered it not knowing for sure, wow, how are all, there's enough diversity here. How's everyone going to, you know, it was a real test of our assumptions and our process. So you bring people into a room and then what happens? So can you describe the process a little bit? Because, because you've talked about kind of like showing, like having a map. Are we looking like at a map of the United States? What does that mean? Very good question. It's it's actually called, um, well, a system map. But what is mapped is is done through a series of interviews with a select number of people. So I like the 80-20 rule, which who are 20, what's 20% of the population of people in this process that if they were interviewed, the 80% would go, well, if you've got their, their thoughts on what the system looked like, then it's going to be an accurate map. So we, you know, my colleague, Scott, who does the mapping interviews, I think in this case, it was around 16, 17 people different disciplines, different organizations, asking them the same questions. And from that, he starts to build a map. He starts to to hear some of the same things or put them together in relation, causal loops with each other. He creates that map through software. It is then um, put up on the wall. I mean, you can project it on a screen bit by bit goes through it and the whole group talks about it. They maybe at first feel like, well, there's not something there that I think is important. So there might be a negotiation. Oh, well, let's tweak that a little. But it does take several days before everyone goes, that's it. That's the system. That's what we're all working on. And that's what we care about. Um, and I should add one more element is there's a key long range goal in the center of the map that the group has also articulated prior to this meeting. And that is what kind of holds that map together. It centers it. And this is where the 245 million uh, acre statement came from. It came from that group prior to the interviews and um, putting the map together. Just to try to help visualize this. So you have a goal in the middle that is, you know, has words, and then you have arrows going to and from the goal to other kind of words, and then so so then it, that explains kind of the the system verbally, right? So you're not creating a map in the sense that again you're not drawing like a map of like the outline of the United States. It's not a geographical map at all, and it is a, a mental model map of how the system is interconnected and how it's operating. How do you convince people that systems mapping is an important endeavor? Well, the approach to that is to have people realize that in order to act powerfully together, they're going to have to see the system collectively with a shared point of view. And to do that, you need a tool, a tool that will help you put your mental models, all the individual's mental models together in a way that you can see something bigger than your point of view. And now you have to come to alignment that yes, that is the system we collectively see. Now we can actually pick points of leverage so we can move on the sorts of things where if we work 
in three areas will have an outsized impact on the the other areas. So that's that's why people should care about and be drawn to system mapping. And it seems to me that the that the power in this type of thinking is is really when you're dealing in a in, in an environment perhaps where there is this high unpredictability, right? Where you don't know what's going to happen. Is that fair? It is fair. And as you know, uh, people don't like uncertainty and unpredictability. You're not a professional forester, um, but what did you learn about the South Forests by leading the Keeping Forest Initiative through their process? Wow. Well, I learned a lot because I live in the West. <laughs> Need I say more? You know, we're, our forests out here are mostly, you know, they're mostly public lands. And so it's a different, different challenge. Uh, when Scott first kind of indoctrinated me to, well, what is keeping forests and what do things look like in this part of the U.S.? It was, I was like, oh my goodness, how are they, how are they going to do this? You've got what, 86% are forests are owned privately. And I know some of those are businesses, some are individuals, but still, how do you get all those stakeholders on the same page, let alone bring in government agencies and and big business. So it it was a challenge just listening to it. I also learned that there's um, a large coalition of of black forest owners, people or landowners that that have forests. And so that kind of socio uh, diversity um, in terms of ownership in the South. Then there was, I learned a lot about some very innovative small businesses in the wood products uh, industry that were doing a lot already in terms of sustainable harvesting and, and uh, you know, working with uh, certification programs for sustainably harvested wood. But the big thing I learned was just how important wood products are. I mean, you should know that anyway, but I guess you just kind of lose sight of that over time. And I remember when your alternative is plastic products, we one of the things I noticed was, well, I'd much rather have sustainably harvested wood products any day than more plastic on the planet. So those are some of the things I learned. One final question for you. What does the term ecosystem services mean to you? Well, it's interesting. When I first heard that term, uh, I can't, I thought I knew what it meant, uh, but I had to dig deeper, you know, as the group was talking about it. And it's, a, and I almost think ecosystem services is too wonky to really describe what it is. I, I almost wish that that wasn't used because I can imagine it's a barrier for some people understanding what you're talking about. But, but what I realized it was, is it's what people it's a, a whole list of services that people benefit from that comes from nature. So, so often uh, we think of like, well, wood and wood products, it's all about the extraction, you know, cutting down of, of forests and using them for some commercial purpose. But forest standing, you know, just being there and being healthy provides a lot of benefits too. Uh, the most obvious and uh, is clean water. Uh, it, it's its impact on the right kind of soil conditions, the flow of water, the 
the purification of water is important to people, to cities. You know, this notion of water funds is connected to ecosystem services. The well-being elements, what do people get through walking through forests and being in uh, outdoors is tremendous in terms of bird watching or, or other animal uh, observations. There's obviously other recreation forms like fishing and hunting. Um, so it's that whole swath, and I'm sure I'm not thinking of all of them, but those are all ecosystem services to humans. Uh, and just by leaving forests standing or taking care of them in ways that keep them healthy, it's not just that tree's not worth anything till it's cut down. Um, so that's that's my understanding of it. So, Anne, why are you excited about keeping forests? Well, I'm very excited about uh, well, what I've learned through being part of this process about keeping forests and the unique challenges in that part of the country with uh, the private ownership of, of the vast majority of the forests. I'm excited about the way people have come together around creating a shared view of a very complex system. Uh, so often what happens is you can talk about a complex system, but if you don't have a way of looking at it and coming to that aligned view, you end up with 45 things you have to do at once and it's exhausting. You don't have the resources. People uh, lose energy. But this group really came together to, to say, yes, that's the system we're trying to impact. They had to speak deeply with each other that brought them together in a much closer way than they were before, even though they'd previously known each other. And they developed energy around three key points of leverage. And from there, we're able to develop specific actions to take in order to, you know, say, let's get to work here and see what we learn. So it it's just fun. I mean, this taking this approach and committing yourself to working with the uncertainty and uh, the complexity, once you get past feeling overwhelmed, it's really energizing and it unleashes a lot of creativity and a sense of we're in this together. Scott Davis joins us now to talk about how Keeping Forest comes into all of this. Scott oversees all aspects of the initiative's work. He has a long career in conservation, having spent most of his time at the Nature Conservancy and has worked in both South America and Asia. Scott, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. So we've heard Ken describe why the forests of the southeastern United States are so special. And Anne has, has spoken about the systems thinking and some of the hallmarks of successful projects. How does Keeping Forest bring these two concepts together? Well, you know, I think at the end of the day, it's all about scale, right? And the only way I think we can really get to the kind of scales that matter are by moving through one of these sort of system approaches. The, the, the traditional thinking around conservation, 100 acres here, 1,000, even 10 and 50,000 acres, doesn't get us to the scales that we need. So the system level approach 
thinking about the economic, social, and political drivers that are impacting these forests and impacting these landowners, I think is, is the only way to really get to a scale of 13 states or 245 million acres. That's, it, it's not that the other scales are unimportant. They're, they are important and they matter. And we need to think about uh, conservation and resource sustainability at all the scales. But the one that is really missing is this large overarching scale uh, sort of thinking about the entire system, the whole 245 million acres. Keeping forest is that attempt, is that way of pulling in sort of the system level thinking around the politics and economics and social impacts with the scale of the forest that ultimately I think we're going to need to protect if, in fact, we're going to be successful protecting them for the values that we've talked about today. So you've mentioned systems a couple of times. Do you mean ecosystems or do you mean something different? In the South, let's start with the keeping forest model, right? At the center of this system is the private landowner. And that, you know, that person's ability to own and manage that property, and Ken talked a little bit about it. One of the assumptions that we're working with here is that if private landowners are unable to make a living, or at least cover the cost of owning and managing those forests, they'll find another use for them. They'll convert them to some other land use. The center of that system is defined as the private landowner. And the system, the way we're looking at it, involves all of those, and I've, I've said this before, the political, social, and economic drivers that impact that person and impact that person's decision around whether to own and manage these forests anymore. So it, ecosystems are embedded in this system, but it's the larger collection of paradigms and economic, political, social forces that this individual landowner and these forests are embedded in. So you mentioned some of the ecosystem services that forests provide. Can you just talk a little about all of those services, or not all of those, but maybe a few of those that you would like to highlight? Sure. Services that functional ecosystems provide us. And for the most part, we're, we take these for granted. There aren't markets built around them. And I'm talking about things like carbon sequestration, uh, flood mitigation, the filtration and cleaning up of water. All of those kinds of things are services that functional forests provide uh, us as, as a society that we really don't pay for. Now, if we can find ways of creating markets around those services, when you think about climate change, for example, one of the most important things that we can do is find ways of sequestering carbon, finding ways of pulling greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere. Trees do that naturally. Functional forests are essentially mitigating many of the impacts of climate change. But the landowners who own and manage these forests aren't being compensated for that. It's a service that we as a society get from functional forests, but we're not paying for it. It, it, is, it is a way of thinking about the creation of markets that uh, 
allow for additional income to forest landowners and their families. So I get a water bill and I pay the water bill. Does that money not go to somebody who's growing trees? Probably not. There are a few places where these kinds of markets have been created, but you're, the, the money you're paying to the water utility is more likely going to cover the operational or you know, maybe even the capital infrastructure costs of creating a water treatment plant somewhere um, that is cleaning the water before they push it out to the consumers. Now, there's a lot of places where the water is pretty clean already, and it's clean already because the forests are providing the same service that that sewage treatment plan is providing. So if we can find a way to compensate landowners for managing those forests to keep that water clean, instead of paying your money to a, a, a water utility to operate you know, a, a water treatment plant, in order to take pollutants out of the water, maybe we can find a way to pay landowners to own and manage their forests in a way that keeps water clean in the first place. So we don't have to clean it up. When when you mentioned landowners, are, are these mostly, um, is this mostly government who owns the land? Can you talk a little bit more about the landowners? Sure. Different parts of the country have different land ownership patterns. You know, obviously out west in the northwest, and even in the upper Midwest, uh, state and federal governments own an, own an awful lot of the land. That's not the case in the south. In the south, of the 245 million acres that were of forest lands that we're talking about, the overwhelming majority of this land, 80 some odd percent, I believe, is privately owned. And most of that privately owned land is owned either by individuals or families. So, so in the South, um, you know, a lot of times we think about conservation and conservation of important natural areas and the government takes care of it. And we feel like, well, there's a big national park here. There's a big national forest there. It's kind of done. In the South, we don't have a lot of public land. Most of it is privately owned. And most of that is owned by individuals and families. So both you and Ken described this 245 million acres. What time horizon are you looking at or is Keeping Forest looking at? You know, this is a long-term initiative. You know, a lot of us enjoy working on a more sort of project level kind of thing because there's a clear beginning, middle, and end. And it's it's easy to see, you know, how much progress you've made and where you are in the larger scheme of things. Keeping forest, you know, I, I believe our mission statement is talking about, you know, finding ways to do this by 2060. This is a decades-long approach. 2060 will probably just be a convenient place to look up and evaluate our progress as we continue to work on this well into the future. But this is this is a long-term effort uh, that will hopefully outlive me and many of the people that are working on this. And my own kids and grandkids will be able to look up at some point in the future and and understand 
you know, how important this really was or is uh, over time. So you did mention that 2060 is a long time horizon. So when you think about the South's family forests and other private forests, what do you want your children and grandchildren to see? I, I want them to be able to experience the same kinds of things that Ken talked about and frankly, the same kinds of experiences that I had as a kid growing up. I want them to be able to access forests that are big enough and healthy enough to get lost in, that that are encompassing all of the values that we've talked about. The the wildlife, the water, the the climate mitigation, all of the kinds of things that are important to us. I want them to be able to experience that directly. And that gets to sort of the spiritual connection associated with, you know, just being in the woods. But maybe more importantly, I want them to understand the mindset that we're trying to create here. And that is these large systems, the forest of the South, are critical infrastructure. They are absolutely essential to the long-term support of, of, our, uh, of our country. That if we don't have ways of mitigating climate change, if we don't have ways of keeping our water clean and ways of thinking about wildlife habitat, species diversity, that are, that are captured in these forests, then we've lost something that's really, really important. So I want them to have the, ex the physical experience of being in the woods, but I also want them to be part of that leading edge that has begun to think about forests a little bit differently, that has begun to think about forests as some of the most important natural systems that we have and that deserve, essentially, our attention our investment, and our protection. You've had a very long career in conservation. Why are you excited about keeping forests? You know, I did. I had a long career. I spent 23 years with the Nature Conservancy. And, you know, I watched the philosophy of conservation change over time, where, you know, it, it, at one point, all we thought about were individual species. And later we began to think about, you know, the larger community of species. And then we got into sort of ecosystem level kinds of conservation and landscape level kinds of conservation. What I've come to appreciate and understand is the importance of scale. If we're not careful, all of these conservation forests, all of the projects we put together over the last, my last 20, 25 years will turn into just little tiny green museum pieces in a dying landscape. What we have to figure out is how to protect that larger matrix landscape. What we have to figure out is how to get to scale. And that's something that none of us are very good at because when you get to the scale of the 13 states southeast, when you get to a scale of 245 million acres, you no longer have complete control over the project. You no longer have 
a lot of control over the, the kinds of impacts that can push you one way or the other. But it's the kind of scale that we just have to figure out. If at the end of the day, we're going to protect all of these natural systems and the things that are embedded within them. It's the kind of scale that we we just have to get to. And the only way to get to it is through these really large collaborations. Of all the things that you've worked on, where does keeping forest rank for you? It's the most important thing I've ever done. It really is. So, you know, Judy, you know, I when I was a state director for the Nature Conservancy, I think in my 12-year career as a state director, our chapter was responsible for somewhere in the neighborhood of 300,000 acres of land being protected. And I was frankly very proud of that. I will always be proud of that. But it's not enough. It's not near enough. If we can't figure out the bigger picture, the larger, the larger scale of this thing, those 300,000 acres will be lost. They'll, they won't mean anything. We won't be able to sustain them. We won't be able to sustain the values that make them important. Scale matters. Size matters. And if we can't figure out how to get to scale, we're, we're at a risk of losing it all. And so I, I want people to understand how important scale is, but I also want people to understand how challenging it is to get to scale and how important it is that we build the kinds of collaborations that allow us to get to scale. Thanks to Ken Arney, Dr. Anne Murray Allen, and Scott Davis for their part in this episode and for their valuable perspective. This is Judy Tackett's for Keeping Forests, a diverse coalition conserving the natural, economic, and cultural value of Southern forests. The music on the podcast is by Chuck Lavelle. I want to thank everyone for tuning into How the River Flows. Join us next time as we explore the connections between healthy forests and clean water and see how others have built a partnership that benefits all. You can listen to How the River Flows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Carlton Owen.